Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hello, listeners. Before we dive into this episode, we wanted to share some exciting news. The next four episodes that we release will be part of a series on slavery that we created in partnership with PBS's The Secrets of the Dead. They have a new episode coming out this October called The Lady in the Iron Coffin. You won't want to miss it. Queens, New York. Construction workers discover the body of a young woman. At first, it appears to be a homicide. But something about the scene doesn't quite add up. My colleague was finishing off sweeping away the last residue of the soil. That's when he discovered something kind of shocking. Now, forensic archaeologist Scott Warnash wants to piece together this historical puzzle. With the help of a close-knit New York community. We can identify with her because she does look like us. And so it does make it personal. We open the door to a neglected history. It's like a digital puzzle that we're piecing together. It's really important that we create this rich and diverse tapestry of African-American life in the 19th century to reveal the mystery behind the woman in the iron coffin. The Lady in the Iron Coffin airs on PBS on October 3rd. You can catch it then or wherever you stream your PBS content. We're so excited about this series on comparative slavery and particularly Sarah's episode, which digs a little deeper into the history of slavery in New York State. You can look for her episode on Sunday, September 9th. So we hope you enjoy. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Between 1522 and 1536, the second most powerful man in the Ottoman Empire was Ibrahim Pasha. 
In addition to bearing the honorific Pasha, which is a title kind of like European knighthood or peerage, he served for 13 years as the Grand Vizier to Suleiman the Magnificent. The two men had grown close as children, and shortly after he took the throne, Suleiman appointed Ibrahim as his vizier. The Grand Vizier was granted power of attorney for all state affairs and could only be dismissed by the Sultan himself. In his tenure as Grand Vizier, Ibrahim Pasha reformed the Egyptian civil and military structure to affirm Egypt's place and loyalty in the Ottoman Empire and convinced Charles V to make Hungary a vassal state of the Ottoman Empire. He ultimately fell out of favor with the Sultan and was executed at Tapkapi Palace. Some historians theorize that he'd made enemies of too many of the Ottoman elite, including the Sultan's favorite wife, Roxolana. Others posit that he feathered the nests of his relatives too liberally. Whatever the case, the most surprising thing about Ibrahim Pasha is not his diplomatic successes or his untimely demise. What is most surprising about Ibrahim Pasha, the second most powerful man in the Ottoman Empire between 1522 and 36, is that he was a slave. I'm Avril Earls. And I'm Marissa Rhodes. And we're your historians for this episode of Dig. This episode is the first of our slavery series. For those of you unfamiliar with our process, I did the research and writing on this episode, and Marissa is joining me today, and I picked this topic to serve as a contrast to the other three we have coming up. Most of our episodes are about the kind of slavery you're probably most familiar with. If you're American and you haven't taken many world history classes in college, you probably think of slavery as specifically that horrifying American brand of chattel slavery in which people were treated like livestock, bred and bought and sold, beaten and tortured and torn apart. We probably unconsciously, um, but certainly did, dedicate three of four episodes in this series to those kinds of stories, because these are issues that we need to study to understand the impact that it had on the enslaved, and that it continues to have on the descendants of the enslaved, on the very fabric of our nations, in our country, and throughout the Americas. But of course, like most things, slavery can be and was many different things. The idea that one person can have ownership over another has taken countless forms. So when we say that Ibrahim Pasha was a slave, we're not referring to a chattel slavery system. The Ottomans had many different words for conditions of enslavement. Abd, for example, meant purchase slave. Kul, the kind of slave Ibrahim Pasha was meant that he was someone who'd been taken through war or from a conquered people as tribute. Per older Turkish tradition, one-fifth of all of the spoils of war went to the sultan to do with it as he pleased. Frequently, those spoils included human captives, as was true of almost all war-making and imperial nations. Most scholars agree that starting in the 1300s, the Ottomans had a particular process of collecting new kul, called devshirme, a sort of human tax paid by Christians to their Ottoman overlords to fill the ranks of the enslaved army, the Janissary Corps. While slaves taken as war captives and the devshirme slaves would ultimately be treated very differently in their training, advancement opportunities, and even religious choice, both were defined as kul rather than apt. 
If nothing else, these nuances reveal the really varied ways that enslavement could be defined and experienced. Dev Shirme, the focus of today's show and the institution from which Ibrahim Pasha emerged, was the taking of Christian children as slaves for the sultan. Ibrahim was not the first or last enslaved man elevated to the status of Grand Vizier. Those like Ibrahim rose through the ranks of servitude to the sultan to effectively run the government from the civil service to the military, collecting taxes, expanding the empire, and managing the day-to-day operations. The Dev Shirme system provided the Ottoman Empire with just about everything they needed to maintain a massive land empire. For about 200 years between the 14th and 16th centuries, Dev Shirme was the primary way the Janissaries were repopulated. Every three or four years, the chief of the Janissaries would issue a decree outlining how many boys were needed and where the Janissary Corps responsible for collecting the boys should go to get them. The Janissary officers appointed to the recruitment position then went to the Christian villages that the chiefs had selected and demanded a list of baptized Christian boys from the local priest. If the priest or the parents of children refused to comply with the Janissary requests, they were punished. These children and their families, particularly in the early years of the Dev Shirme system, saw this for what it was, the enslavement of their children. But there were many others who came to see what it could be, an opportunity to have a son in a high-ranking government position, a way to stop paying the poll tax levied on all non-Muslims in the empire, a different, maybe even better kind of life for one of their many children in a hard year on the farm. There were rules about who could be taken. The Janissaries avoided taking a boy from a family that had no other boys to prevent disruption of the family's ability to work their land and, by extension, pay their taxes. The officers would select boys from the best families, seeking the best possible future soldiers. They wanted the smartest, most physically fit, and best-looking boys. They also had restrictions on the ethnic and religious backgrounds of boys they would take. They preferred Balkan farm boys, but also targeted Anatolian Christians. They generally didn't take Jewish, Roma, or Armenian boys, but occasionally broke those rules depending on the needs of the empire. They'd typically take boys between the ages of 6 and 8, but also took boys as young as 4 and as old as 18. The villages selected would rotate so that a region would not suffer an undue amount of human taxation in a given cycle. The Ottomans kept meticulous records, so the chief of the Janissaries had precise knowledge of how many children had been taken, where they'd been taken from, and how many Christian families lived in every village under the empire's dominion who might be eligible for Dev Shirme at the next conscription issuance. Sometimes parents circumcised their boys to pass them off as Muslim. In theory, Muslims were not allowed to enslave other Muslims, which is why Nibshirme targeted Christian communities, taking Christian boys who were later forced to convert to Islam. Because these Christian communities had been conquered by the Ottomans, however, this is a source of sort of a conundrum for scholars of the Ottoman Empire. Because per Islamic law, people living in conquered lands, including Jews and Christians and Zoroastrians and everyone, were protected once their lands were conquered by an Islamic empire. They were required to pay the poll tax levied on all non-Muslims, which was a pretty significant tax, but was not usually a flesh tax, a human tax. So Dev Shirme might be interpreted as an infringement on that protected status. 
But some scholars argue that Devshirme boys were conscripted from among those who had never been granted genuine protected status, which meant that Devshirme was not contradicting Islamic law. It's a bit of mental gymnastics, but really not any more surprising than the crazy things people convince themselves of every day. To your original point, one of the ways Balkan parents attempted to resist having their children taken was by circumcising the boys to pass them off as Muslim. Because Muslims were technically safe from Devshirme in its early iterations. They also tried marrying boys off to keep them from being taken. Sometimes the ruse worked, but usually it didn't. Right, yes. And of course I'm sure that some parents fell to their knees and begged that their boys not be taken or tried to fight for them or tried to bribe the Janissaries. The bribery probably worked now and then. Even the magnificent Janissaries weren't immune to a good-looking goat bribe. Who would be immune to a goat bribe? I don't know. I can't imagine. (laughs) Um, Inappropriate jokes aside, um, this could be as traumatizing and sad an experience for the boys and their families as any enslavement process. For all intents and purposes, in the early years of Dev Shirme, the boys taken were the slaves of the sultan. They lived only at his pleasure, and every lira to their name was only at the sultan's discretion. We'll get to some of the other ways that Dev Shirme resembles the slave systems that we are more familiar with uh, in a little bit. But yes, there were there would have been many who resisted and resented the Dev Shirme enslavement process because that's what it was, the enslavement of children. There's an anonymous song um, from Epirus in Greece that expresses the resentment and resistance. We don't know the tune, so we'll, I'll just uh, make one up for you, or April will make me make one up for you, <laughs> so that you can get the full effect. Be damned, emperor, thrice be damned for the evil you have done. And the evil that you do, you catch and shackle the old and the archpriests <laughs> in order to take the children as janissaries, their parents weep, their sisters and brothers too. And I cry until it pains me, as long as I live, I shall cry. For last year it was my son. And this year it was my brother. That's it. <laughs> it doesn't fit quite perfectly. But clearly um, there's a sense of anger and devastation here. And we don't mean to make fun of that. It's no. just that we don't know the tune. So we don't really know how to yeah, say it. The, the but, tune doesn't belie that. Yeah, the tune, the, doesn't, words, the, the tune doesn't quite belong there. But I have kids, so I don't really know any other tunes at the moment. They're tuneless. Uh, What I actually think is interesting about this song is how it absolves the church leaders of their compliance with the recruitment officers Um, that, quote, you catch and shackle the archpriest. And because he's the guy with the parish records who can tell the Janissary officers all the names and ages of the boys in town, he's the most valuable resource for tribute collection. The idea that he would cooperate willingly and facilitate this pain and horror was unthinkable. It really captures the heartbreak many felt about Dev Shirme. But what is also pretty interesting to consider is that many, many people did not resist or even resent Dev Shirme. That's kind of hard to conceptualize, but in most ways, this system was very different from the chattel slavery of the Atlantic, and that's true of most slave systems in world history. Dev Shirme is not the only slavery system in which enslaved people could achieve high-ranking positions. There are plenty of examples in history of slaves who became kings, and imperial Islamic empires like the Mughals, 
Abbasids, etc., etc., almost all had a class of enslaved soldiers. The Mamluks, for example, first used by the Abbasids in the early Islamic Caliphate, were often purchase slaves, unlike the Devshirmay. A dynasty of kings descended from Mamluk soldiers ruled Egypt for over 300 years, starting in the 13th century. So while there were those who did not want to give up their children to a life of servitude to the sultan, resentment or resistance were not always the standard reactions. There were many who embraced it, who even requested it for their sons and themselves. So before we get into the many reasons folks might have been clamoring to submit their sons to the Devshirmay or to get themselves into the Janissaries, let's talk about the Devshirmay process more specifically. I think that way we'll be able to really highlight the ways the Devshirmay was, was a process of enslavement, but also the kind of slavery that would encourage people to submit to enslavement. Devshirme is derived from a word that means to collect or to gather in Turkish. So essentially, Devshirme is go out to gather the boys, gather the children. Though the origins of the practice are based more in speculation than hard evidence, all scholars agree that it was a formal institution by the time of Mehmed II, aka Mehmed the Conqueror, who took Constantinople in 1453. One of the sources I always assign to my world history students is a description of the Devshirme system in 1493, so just after the time of Mehmed the Conqueror. This source was written by a European observer, so of course it has many, many, many problems and must be viewed with a very critical eye, but it is useful for getting a sense of the Devshirme process. The opening paragraph describes the legal and political goals of Devshirme. Sometime in the 1350s, the Grand Vizier suggested to the reigning sultan that he deserved one-fifth of the human spoils of war, not just the material wealth. Quote, let officers be stationed at Gallipoli, and as the Christians pass by, let them choose the fairest and strongest of the Christian boys to become your soldiers. End quote. Agreeing, the sultan issued an edict. Quote, the advice of the vizier was followed. The edict was proclaimed. Many thousands of the European captives were educated in the Mohammedan religion and arms, and the new militia was consecrated and named by a celebrated dervish. Standing in the front of their ranks, he stretched the sleeve of his gown over the head of the foremost soldier, and his blessing was delivered in the following words. Let them be called Janizaries. May their countenances be ever bright, their hand victorious, their swords keen. May their spear always hang over the heads of their enemies. And wheresoever they go, may they return with a white face. Such was the origin of these haughty troops, the terror of the nations. End quote. So one of the goals in the Devshirme system was, according to this source, to convert Christians to Islam. You can imagine why the European author would highlight this in the description. When the first of these converts or slaves were then made the first Janissary Corps, they were named by a celebrated dervish. Dervishes were Sufi ascetics, almost saint-like, who would have had a decent enough following to be noticed by the sultan. So they were... Um, Notables. Mm -hmm. Janissary means new soldier in Turkish. As a military force, the author of the source is quite right to point out that they were the terror of nations. The Janissaries were trained to use the earliest firearms and became a pretty formidable force in battle. The source continues to describe the process of tribute collection. Quote, 
They are kept up by continual additions from the sultan's share of the captives and by recruits raised every five years from the children of the Christian subjects. Small parties of soldiers, each under a leader and each provided with a particular firman, go from place to place. Wherever they come, the protogeros assemble the inhabitants with their sons. The leader of the soldiers have the right to take away all the youth who are distinguished by beauty or strength, activity or talent above the age of seven. He carries them to the court of the Grand Seigneur, a tithe, as it is, of the subjects. The captives taken in war by the Pashas and presented by them to the Sultan include Poles, Bohemians, Russians, Italians, and Germans. How many, like, I volunteer myself as tribute jokes are you going to make in this episode? I haven't, but I should have. Okay. Um, so again, the ideal age was seven, when a boy was presumably more malleable into a loyal servant to the sultan. He was collected by a small contingent of soldiers. The first must have just been ordinary soldiers, but after the Janissary Corps was established, it was the Janissaries who did the collection. Right. Smart. Yeah. <laughs> because Janissary Corps can't collect themselves. Until they're made. <laughs> <laughs> Until they are a thing. Yeah, we know. Um, they carried with them a written decree, the Furman, and wherever they showed up, the villages had to come out and present their sons. As we know from other sources, this usually involved going first to the local priest, getting a list of all the boys and their ages, and then calling those families specifically into the center of town to do the selection. Simultaneously, the Ottomans were enslaving war captives from Poland, Russia, Italy, Germany, etc., etc., um, most of Shermay children were collected from the Balkans. The children taken as spoils of war from European nations had very different experiences than those collected as Dev Shermay tribute from the already conquered lands in Ottoman control. Very few of the general captives of war made their way into the Janissary Corps, but all would have been presented to the local pasha, no. a feudal sort of lord loyal to the sultan, and it, he in turn brought them to the sultan as a tithe. And as sort of our opening anecdote suggested, eventually many of these pashas were slaves themselves, mm -hmm. had r risen from the Janissary Devshirme system. So the journey of the... So, but some of them would have, could have filtered through when the pasha introduced them. If the pasha gave them to the sultan as a tithe, would mm -hmm. they have become Janissaries or were they just his special boys? Or he, he would just like... So the Pasha would say, okay, I've got these guys that my army collected because they were fighting on the border, and then I've got these guys because I went out and collected the tithe, and then I got them all together, I brought them to the Sultan in the city as my tithe. Okay. Yeah. So the journey of the tributes is worth noting as well. The boys were grouped into crowds of 100 to 200 for the march from the village to the palace. While they were fed and watered as one would expect of a group that would be turned into soldiers... This still would have been a pretty harrowing journey, and all on foot. They would have just been marching for hundreds of miles. Mm -hmm. They would have been dressed in red jackets and hats so that they would be easily visible to discourage both kidnapping um, or escapes, including by, you know, some of the soldiers or whoever was sort of corralling them, shepherding them along to prevent them from dragging one into the woods and com committing unspeakable things. Again, this was generally an involuntary process. There would have certainly been a range of responses to the capture and enslavement of these children, regardless of the opportunities afforded um, and how much the villagers knew about what would happen to their children. Mm -hmm. They were marched to the Pasha's palace and then divided. According to our European source, these recruits are divided into two classes. 
Those who compose the one are sent to Anatolia, where they are trained to agricultural labor and instructed in the Muslim faith. And then he means Islam there. Um, not the applesauce. Not the applesauce of Muslim men. <laughs> <laughs> or they are retained about the seraglio, where they carry wood and water and are employed in the gardens and the boats or upon the public buildings, always under the direction of an overseer, he with a stick, who with a stick compels them to work. Here he seems to begin conflating sort of the Devshirme boys and war captives, or at least not really differentiating between those kinds of enslaved boys. Because while some of the Devshirme captives would have been funneled into menial labor, most went the path of the Janissaries, with exceptional boys uh, being put in school for training in administrative work. The boys who stayed and worked effectively as domestic labor would have mostly been those war captives. Mm-hmm. Focusing on the use of the stick and overseer for the general laborers was probably quite familiar for a European observer. Discussing the cruel punishment of enslaved children in the same breath as forced conversion to Muslim faith, which is Islam, um, were surely intended to shock readers at the barbarism of the Ottomans. Before they were sent off to training in war or bureaucracy, the Devshirme children were allowed to rest for a few days. What a gift. Then they were stripped naked and inspected for bodily defects. Those who did not pass inspection were the ones directed into menial labor with all the war captives. After passing inspection, the boys were baptized as new Muslims. That meant professing the faith with the declaration that there is no God but God and Muhammad is the prophet. Being given a new Muslim name and, of course, getting circumcised. When the first bits were literally painless, obviously the final requirement was not. Undoubtedly, we would categorize Devshirme conversion, at least in the early decades of the process, as very much forced, uh, as no one really enjoys having their foreskin removed, do they? <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think so. No. Um, there's no telling if the boys even knew what was coming or if they were suddenly just being held down naked and then experienced the suddenly searing pain of a knife across the tip of their penis. So obviously this is like horrifying and traumatizing, to say the least. After baptism, though, sometimes they'd be sent to foster families to acclimate to their new city for a few months. In their foster families, they would have learned the new language, um, helped out around the house, perhaps formed some bonds with other children or even the parents, and would have been instructed in the practices of Islam, including learning to pray five times a day. When there wasn't a fostering program, captives were sent straight to the palace for service and learning. In the palace, they learned Turkish and Arabic languages and literature, the Quran, Muslim jurisprudence, theology or law, and were given military training. According to the European source, quote, those in whom traces of a higher character are discernible are placed in one of the four seraglios of Adrianople or Galata or the older new one at Constantinople. Here, they are lightly clad in linen or in cloth of Saloniki with caps of Prusa cloth. Saloniki is a little island off of Greece, right? Mm -hmm. Teachers come every morning who remain with them until evening and teach them to read and write, end quote. Depending on what age they were taken, the captives would have been in the palace service for at least three years. If they were chosen to stay longer, it was because they exhibited great promise. They were selected to continue their education in the Enderun, the palace school, and the rest were sent to become soldiers. They might become personal attendants to the sultan, provincial administrators, or even rise to be vizier Iazem, the grand vizier. 
As historian Charles Hamilton Argo points out, quote, regardless of position, however, these men remained in theory slaves. Both their lives and their property existed only at the discretion of the sultan, end quote. The truth of their position in society could not have been lost on them. Like any new recruits readying for a life of military service, they were subjected to clearly defined rules of behavior. They were to be humble and polite, reverent in the presence of their superiors. Non-compliance meant punishment. Every day was tightly scheduled. They had to get up at the same time, pray at the same time, walk slowly and quietly, eat slowly, bathe weekly, even according to Goulet Yilmaz, shave regularly, wear well-pressed clothes, and perform the five daily prayers. Our European commentator echoes Yilmaz's finding, writing, quote, Both classes are kept under a strict discipline. The former especially are accustomed to privation, food, drink, and comfortable clothing, and to hard labor. They are exercised in shooting with the bow and arquebus, um, which is like an early gun, um, by day, and spend the rest of the night in a long, lighted hall with an overseer who walks up and down and permits no one to stir. When they are received into the core of the Janissaries, they're placed in cloister-like barracks in which the different odas or ortas live so entirely in common that the military dignitaries are called from the soups and kitchens. So I assume that means that even the highest-ranking officers still worked in the kitchens. Okay. Yeah. Here, not only the younger continue to obey the elders in silence and submission, but all are governed with such strictness that no one's permitted to spend the night abroad, and whoever is punished is compelled to kiss the hand of him who inflicts the punishment, end quote. So we're not talking about a glamorous life here. Very regimented, very controlled, very much unfree. Again, the Devshir May is producing slaves for the sultan. In some ways, it might resemble a military draft or boot camp for our former military listeners, but the terms of service are life. And if you try to dodge it, and you and probably your family will be punished pretty severely, and not with a few years in prison either. Yet, as we already mentioned, having a son in the Janissary Corps could be quite advantageous. In theory, the process of the Dev Shirme was to sever a child's ties with his family. He was taken from his home, his family left hundreds of miles behind. He was stripped of his clothes, his name, and his faith. He was beaten and conditioned into submission and loyalty to the Sultan. If he was stationed as a policeman or tax collector, he was sent far from his blood relations. He was not allowed to marry or have children or own property without express consent from the sultan. He was not supposed to have allegiances to anyone except the sultan. So you're kind of trying to show like scales of freedom, you know, like Mm -hmm. there's so chattel slavery. I think uh, one way to think of it is not only is it slavery, but you're also like treated like animals. Mm -hmm. Like so that's I mean, it's. But also slavery itself, where you're not treated like an animal, but you're treated like an enslaved human being, is still not great. It's still not great. You're still unfree. Mm -hmm. You don't have choices. Uh, But one of the important things to remember about the Dev Shirme system was that it and the Janissary Court fed into were constantly changing institutions, which is, I'm sure that there were degrees of change in chattel slavery, but the the magnitude of changes in the way that the Devshirme system and the Janissary Corps operated are just pretty pretty sh- pretty interesting, pretty shocking. Though the enslaved effectively uh, managed the Ottoman Empire from 1450 under Mehmed II till the early 19th century, the Devshirme system itself started to decline after 1600. 
Some scholars contend that it ended formally in 1639, although others pushed the closer to 1700. But either way, any similar tribute system thereafter was localized and responding to immediate need for manpower. None of the traditional elements of the Devshire may continued. The Janissary Corps itself, however, changed dramatically and existed until 1826, when it was violently abolished by the Ottoman Sultan. So the strictness surrounding family ties eroded pretty quickly. Like our friend Ibrahim Pasha, who was known for improving his blood relations lives considerably once he obtained the position of Grand Vizier, many Devshirmi children grew up to be extremely powerful allies for their families. Sokulu Mehmed Pasha, who lived from 1505 to 1579 and served as Grand Vizier for three successive sultans, used his office regularly to improve the lot of his family. He appointed other Devshirmi recruits who related to him to really cushy palace jobs. He had fancy buildings built on his native land. He intervened in the affairs of his family's Orthodox Christian church hierarchy to ensure they got to keep church positions. Um, his two sons conveniently achieved high office, not conveniently because he just probably pulled strings for them. Yeah. Um, and he even broke Ottoman law by building an Orthodox church for his brother, a priest in the Bosnian town of Ravansi. Uh, he was ultimately assassinated but probably because he'd made enemies of several of the important palace women. Uh, they never learn, do It's they? supposed to be a joke. No. Sorry. No. No, they don't. <laughs> they never learn. They're always <laughs> pissing off the woman folk. Yeah, and they pay for it in the end. The ultimate price. But anyway, sorry. <clears throat> the other thing about Mehmet Pasha that I want to point out is his two sons. Remember, like, five minutes ago when we said that Janissaries were not allowed to get married or have children? Uh, clearly, by 1500... That rule had been renegotiated. Maybe it's kind of like how in, like, Renaissance Italy, the Pope. priests and the oh, Pope priests. weren't, like, supposed to get married or, like, yeah. supposed to have children. Sure. But tons of, like, the Medici Popes were just like, forget that. I'm just going to F whoever I want. Yeah, but they were also Popes and priests and not slaves. You dig? Yeah, I guess. Okay. The 1606 rules of the Janissaries is basically the core of our understanding of the form and function of the Janissary Corps. It's effectively a manual for how a Janissary should expect to live, but it also provides some interesting commentary on the changing nature of the Janissary Corps. It notes, for example, that the Devshirme system was the primary mode of acquiring new Janissaries, and that for the most part, this was an involuntary procedure. But in the mid-15th century, for example, Bosnian Muslims, though recently converted, requested that their children be eligible for the Devshirme. As early as 1515, 1,000 boys of Bosnian Muslim parentage were drawn into the Janissary Corps. The text also, perhaps snidely, comments that it, quote, used to be that Janissaries could not marry, end quote, a rule set out in the original tenets of the Corps. As the Janissary grew, however, and gained considerable leverage in the empire, they began to renegotiate the terms of their enslavement pretty significantly. Already by the end of the 15th century, we have evidence of Janissaries joining guilds. They owned businesses, offered protection services to get a cut of other business owners' profits. It sounds like a game. Yeah. A game. They're like a big mafia. And they were shopkeepers in the towns where they um, were stationed. So they like, go, you know, whatever, do their administrative stuff in the morning and then go open up their baklava shop in the afternoon that's racist <laughs> is it i, I thought know. that was greek i don't even know ottoman desserts <laughs> turkish delight is that really turkish i don't know but it's really good i oh, love it it's too sweet mm -mm. 
sometime between the 1570s and 80s, they were granted permission, formal permission, by the Sultan to marry and enlist their descendants into the corps. So many put their children on the payroll ridiculously early, well before they could have conceivably been helpful to do any actual work. We're talking like three-year-olds getting paychecks. Well, this is just when they got permission to start doing this. As evidenced by Mehmed Pasha, there were plenty of Devshirme recruits who were taking some kind of wife or lover on the side, having children with her, and then putting those children in the ranks of the Janissaries without permission of the Sultan. Uh, so from pretty early on in the Devshirme history, there were really mixed responses to the enslavement system. We have evidence of Christian parents trying to bribe the heads of the units collecting children to smuggle their sons into the ranks of the Janissaries, even though they didn't meet the recruitment criteria, as well as par- evidence of parents trying to get their sons out of the situation. Some resisted, some embraced the Devshirme system, and as the Janissary court self-changed, so too did the Devshirme system. So for about 200 years, the Devshirme system, with its taxation every three or four years, was necessary to fill out the ranks of the Ottoman bureaucracy and military. And that's mostly because the empire was still growing until the 17th century. Uh, um, But the changing nature of the Janissary Corps ultimately made the Devshirme system kind of moot, pointless, useless. By the 17th century, more Janissaries wanted their sons and nephews and such to get the cushy lifetime jobs that the Corps offered. Because service in the Corps didn't necessarily mean that those boys couldn't also be involved in lucrative land acquisition ventures and businesses. Since that wasn't a problem, there's no sense in trying to keep their kids out of the service. So the nepotism was rampant. Plus, the membership benefits of being part of the Janissaries were so enticing by the 17th century that thousands were converting to Islam and putting in their bid to try and get an appointment. In the Balkans, Janissaries were heavily responsible for conversion of the peoples there. At first, the number of Muslims increased as a side effect of the Devshirme system itself, but by the 17th century, it was a way for rural people to stop paying the poll tax and start getting the economic and social benefits of membership in the Janissary class. And effectively, like, all of your neighbors were Muslim, so you may as well be Muslim too. Right. It incentivized yeah. conversion. Yeah. Social conversion processes. Thousands saw the benefits of joining the Janissaries. Two men, hoping to join the Corps, wrote directly to the Sultan, quote, Your Majesty, our illustrious and generous Sultan, may you be healthy. We, your slaves, wish to be granted the honor to adopt Islam. Our request of the Sultan is that we too wish to be enlisted in the Janissary Corps and in accordance with the law be issued with Janissary uniforms. The rest is left to the decree of His Majesty the Sultan, your two slaves, new Muslims. I just want to say that it sounds like the only reason they want this is because they want the uniforms. Yeah, exactly. Like, they're just like, we want to be Janissaries and make sure you include the uniforms. Like, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. <laughs> Hey, History Buffs, I'm B.T. Newberg, host of Dead Ideas, the podcast of extinct thoughts and practices. My friends and I explore ideas once believed to be true, but no longer, like spontaneous generation, the idea that meat grows maggots all by itself, or Byzantine court eunuchs cutting off your junk to get ahead. Check out Dead Ideas and all the other great shows on the brand new Recorded History Network, and you can say you were doing it before it was cool. Um, Clearly, these two men understood the relationship of Janissary to Sultan, that of slave to master. While the Corps barely functioned that way at the time they were writing, it was still in theory the standard. Mm -hmm. Another wrote, 
Your Majesty, my prosperous and generous Sultan, may you be healthy. I, your humble servant, abandoned the lost Christian faith and was granted the honor of adopting the right one, Islam. I beg of my merciful Sultan to fill me with joy by enlisting me in the Janissary Corps. Benevolence and order belong to His Majesty the Sultan, your humble servant, etc. Plus, don't forget to send the uniforms. <laughs> um, and yet another wrote, quote, Your Majesty, blessed and happy my Sultan. I, your humble servant, praise be to God, was granted the honor of adopting Islam and even circumcised myself with mine own hand. Your servant, the new Muslim, Mustaga from Karlovo, end quote. Ouch. Is it Mustafa or is it actually Mustaga? Well, it's Mustafa in the okay. source, but it might be Mustafa. Uh, talk about the ex- going the extra mile there. I know. Snip, snip. Don't worry, I already circumcised myself for you. It's like, whoa, calm down. It's healing nicely, I swear. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, calm. That's not a bad smell, I promise. Calm down, kid. <laughs> so the men who wrote these letters were effectively rural peasants. Um, historian Evgeny Radushev has found that there were considerable pockets of towns on the outskirts of the Ottoman Empire where, quote-unquote, Janissaries lived. These are the, in the censuses and stuff. Um, so they were men who collected janissary wages and were afforded the economic and social capital of the station, but who were actually not trained or serving in traditional janissary capacities. Just wearing the uniforms. Just wearing the uniforms, yeah. It's like a paramilitary thing. Like, they're they're just like, it's like the National Guard. They're just like, yeah. effing around. But they don't even No have offense, to, James. They don't have to go, like, one weekend a month or whatever. Right, right, right. Okay, so no offense to National Guard or paramilitary groups. I'm just saying, that's kind of... A really, that's a good analogy, I think. Yes, yes. Um, one of the reasons folks were clamoring to become Janissaries in the 17th century was that the Janissaries effectively had a total monopoly of power. When Osman II, um, so he reigned from 1618 to 1622, acted against the corps, they killed him and replaced him with a more amenable sultan. Wow. Mm-hmm. With the nepotism and thousands of citizens volunteering to join the corps, it was unimaginably bloated. In the course of the 15th century, their number did not exceed 10,000. By the second half of the 16th century, it was just 12,789 and 13,599 in 1574. So it's kind of growing quite slowly. By the beginning of the 17th century, the nearly tripled to 37,627 people. And in 1609, no, that was in 1609. 1609, and then it doubled to 55,653. So you see sudden, yeah, massive inflation, yeah. As it grew, it became less efficient. What the Corps had been known for, keen and superior battle prowess and firearm use, was a thing of the past. Members of the Corps were more interested in their economic ventures than in keeping ahead of the military curve. So this kind of like sounds like it has become. Like a peerage, mm-hmm. like in in England, or yeah. um, you're a you're a lord, you're a vassal to the king, which is the sultan. Yeah, that sort of thing. Sort of, but there were also still like just regular people running. You know, they were like the clerks who went out and collected census data, and they were the guys who went and collected taxes, and they were the police officers in the town. Yeah, but they enjoyed. But they enjoyed the the social capital of yeah, being, of being a, janissary. a janissary. They were like, oh, I'm a janissary. But also slaves, sort yeah. of. Yeah. Very strange. I mean, there is no exact analogy, I yeah, guess, no. is the point. But yeah, I'm just like, trying to very weird. conceptualize, you know, how yeah. 
how to think about them. It's hard. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just the Bosnians trying to get membership either. Um, though previously excluded from the enslavement of the Devshirme system, as early as the 16th century, Janissary commander-in-chiefs were appointing boys of Muslim Turkish origin to the corps as apprentices. A Janissary chronicler who found this practice pretty distasteful noted, quote, registers were filled with appointed apprentices, and this opened the way for Turks to penetrate the Janissary ranks. The recruitment of youths became unnecessary, and this was what threw Devshirme into confusion. It was useless to expect any exhibit of valor from the corps once Turks penetrated it. If apprentices were driven away and the practice of recruiting youths through Devshirme was reestablished, the military victories would be guaranteed. Curmudgeon. It's hilarious, though, because obviously the Ottoman Empire is a Turkish, right, Turkic, Turkish right. empire that's being run by these Balkan Anatolian. Well, not Christian exactly. Boys. They're like they're like they're like a secret spy force, like you know, for the Sultan. Like that's kind of how they're thinking of it. Like, but they're also like not of the ethnic or even technically religious parentage that all the that right. that the ruling class. Well, they must is have to seen be. that as an advantage. Yeah. In, in a way, yeah. Like, that, they must have understood that to be an advantage. And when they were policing, like, Istanbul, then yeah, because they wouldn't have had any special ties to the 17 families in this neighborhood because their family was from the Balkans a million miles away. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. But then those guys, though, who are obviously, like, in charge, then when they see that these Turks are coming in and being part of it, they're like, oh, Turks... But it's weird, they're just, like, dissing themselves. But they're not... No, by being like, oh, all these Turks in the Janissary Corps are ruining it. But, like, they are Turks. The Turks created the Janissary Corps. Well, originally, but by the time we're talking about, like, 16th century, the Janissary Corps is run by itself, which is being mined from these Devshirme provinces. Yeah, so it's like turned into its own Yeah, so the Janissary recorder, he would have probably been from whatever, like Serbia, and he'd been like, ugh, Turks. Yeah. Okay, I get it. Yeah. Um, Rather than experiencing social death of the slavery we see in the Americas, Janissaries were more likely intermediaries between the ruling elite and the people because of their unique roles as police, soldiers, tax collectors, etc., but also business owners and guild members. Still, they were slaves and reminded of it frequently enough. Undoubtedly, the enslavement of these men through the Debshirme system had far from the desired effect. Janissaries were very in-group loyal rather than loyal to the sultan. So they kind of created their own group identity and decided to be loyal to each other. Which is why they're like, ugh, Turks. Right. And many maintained those ties with their non-Muslim families back home, which made their loyalties all the more fractured. By the 16th century, they were already a formidable and volatile force. A sultan who thought to cross them paid the ultimate price. By the 18th century, they were hardly a slave force any longer and maintained their loyalties to their ruler only insofar as he served them. In the end, that was their doom. In 1826, Sultan Mahmud II secretly trained a new artillery corps, Uh, without the Janissary hierarchy's knowledge. In June, he issued an order he knew the Janissaries would defy. He declared their defiance treason and ordered his new army to execute each and every Janissary in the Ottoman Empire. Thousands died in flaming agony when the Istanbul barracks were blitzed with cannon fire. In other cities, some regiments managed to flee. 
Perhaps unsurprisingly, some found refuge with the people, peoples who had been their own in the Balkans. In the 1830s, the observer French, observant French geographer and voyager Aviscanel reported the following, quote, the road up... Just Ma- Aviscanel. A. Like, his first name started with an A. <laughs> uh, well, is French would be A. Yeah, that is true, yeah, but... A. Viscanel reported the following, quote, The Rodope Mountains, in their better part, were populated by a fanatic, a fanatic Muslim population. The Pomaks were well disposed to the Janissaries' cause and provided sanctuary for this formidable army during the destruction of the Corps in 1826. Armed resistance was organized, which had to be subdued by force. The Civil War, confiscations, and destruction that followed ruined the rich owners. A significant number of animals, the major wealth of the province, were destroyed. Ibrahim Pasha was born to Orthodox Christian parents in Epirus, a region that was then part of the Republic of Venice and is now shared between Greece and Albania. Around the age of six or seven, he was collected by the Ottoman governor of Bosnia as part of the Devshirme. At some point while working in Istanbul, he befriended the future sultan, who later named him his grand vizier. In 1536, his sultan and master had him executed summarily at Topkapi Palace. He, like so many who came after him, and ultimately the Janissary court itself, learned the limits of a slave's power. In the end, he lived only at the discretion of his sultan. Boom! Boom! What a wrap-up, eh? Yeah, it's good. Ibrahim Pasha. Ibrahim! (sighs) So... There ends our first tale of slavery in this four-episode series. Uh, And the stories hereafter are going to be much more aligned with what you would expect of slavery if you're an American um, in terms of chattel slavery. That's I mean, I don't talk about Americans, but But like... America's. I say America's slavery. My my episode will be about um, slave revolts in the Caribbean. Right. So it'll actually be a little, a lot more European than... There's a lot of European politics and stuff that yeah. gets wrapped up in that. So, But either way, we hope you enjoyed this episode. We hope you enjoy this series. Uh, learn something. If you enjoy this episode, you'll definitely want to check out Dead Ideas upcoming episode releasing September 2nd on Byzantine court eunuchs. Be sure to check out Dead Ideas at deadideas.net or wherever you get your podcasts. That's one of our fellow recordedhistory.net podcasts. You know, make, give us a shout out if you liked it in a review on wherever you get your podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, any of those places, Google Play. And if you want to continue this conversation, any of the discussions from any of these episodes, then you can always find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, uh, or you can join our super secret, not very secret Facebook group, Dig Pod Squad, or you can shoot us an email at hello at digpodcast.org. Yep. Thanks for listening. Uh, Bye. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Averill Earls. Thanks for listening. Um, oh, I guess I didn't finish that sentence. Um, I need something to, like, I need a tune. I can't just, I can't just compose a tune. I need some type of simple melody. Do like Old MacDonald tune. (laughs) That's bad. Old (laughs) MacDonald would be bad. Um, uh, How about I'll do like just ABCs or Twinkle Twinkle because it's the same thing. Music interlude. Music interlude. Frequently those spoils included included. So probably he was hungry a lot and his brain wasn't very creative.
when he came up with that name. Because it was an aesthetic and he denied yeah. himself food? Yeah. He's like, oh, I need a name for these guys. Uh, you're the new soldiers. Okay. <laughs> oh, he has like a Jewish accent for some reason. Well, you know, there's only so many accents to go around. 